0: Welcome back to another episode of The Rage Podcast. I'm your host, Mikaela Parker, and on today's episode, we will be talking to Alison Baer, an IRISE postdoctoral fellow who studies the social etiology of physical and mental health outcomes among stigmatized group members. In our dialogue today, we will be talking about collective grief, racial socialization, and the death of worldviews. So without further ado, Let's get into this great
1: conversation. My name is Alison Baer. I'm a social psychologist, and I study how race-related beliefs influence the health and well-being of racially minoritized group members. And I'm particularly interested in how black racial identity and the experience of stigma interact to produce beliefs, strategies, and behaviors that impact the health and well-being of blacks. As a black Canadian, originally from Jamaica, I'm aware that racial and cultural contexts and climates influence our racial identity, so I've been interested in looking at these issues in different contexts, including Canada, Jamaica, and the U.S., and the goal of my work is really to add to the knowledge base that we as members of the black diaspora can draw upon to strengthen our understanding of ourselves and maximize our well-being. So building mental and physical health, resilience, social justice orientation, self-sufficiency, and a sense of belonging.
0: Thank you so much. Your work has really inspired me in the work that I do. So with that being said, you have an incredible presentation on collective grief and trauma, where you address the barriers to social justice, racial myths, and how these tie to our American identity. What inspires you to speak on these topics?
1: Well, like many of us, I've been observing the social strife that has been going on in our society in recent years. We saw with the Obama presidency, the Trump presidency, with COVID, the murder of George Floyd, and a lot of this has to do with challenges to our core beliefs about our nation and the social hierarchy. So, you know, there seems to be a lot of anger and frustration in everyday people, misdirected hostilities people feeling unheard or overlooked, people feeling like everything is changing and they've lost their footing. And in observing this, I thought it would be interesting to use our understanding of grief to contextualize this phenomenon. But rather than examining individual grief, looking at this as collective grief. And I think this really fits because if you look at the symptoms of grieving, you see things like disorientation, difficulty letting go, feelings of longing, obsessing about the past, anxiety about the future, physiological distress, and all of these sound a lot like what many of us are experiencing as a collective at this moment. Even if you think about the stages of grief, many of them seem like what we're experiencing at this moment. So these events have required us to confront and evaluate who we believe we are and what we stand for as Americans. And if we narrow this down a little and focus on our beliefs or worldviews around race, the loss of this racial worldview has led to a period of grieving for us as a nation, but in different ways for majority and minority group members.
0: I think that's a very interesting route that you take in regards to your research regarding collective grief, because even our identities, there's so much to unlearn. Even worldviews, as we go through life Times change, so it's important to also acknowledge that worldviews change and that our worldview should also change as the times do as well. This idea that we're constantly evolving with the spaces around us rather than getting stuck in these mindsets or frames of thinking that, that inherently are exclusionary. I really love that part because like you said, there is a moment of grieving and reckoning that's uh, been happening since the pandemic to now just like understanding oneself in proximity to the current moment. So I think spaces to talk about our perception of worldviews is super important. So I wanted to also ask, you discuss the death of worldviews and common racial socialization themes, such as racial silence, egalitarianism, meritocracy, racialized pathology, and racial progress. Can you elaborate or provide contemporary examples of these themes to our
1: audience? Yes, so I think that one reason people are struggling to evolve to meet the realities of our times, as you've been saying, is that we've been raised with certain beliefs about who we are and what our values are as Americans and how to practice those values. So if we take our mainstream racial socialization, for example, from the time we were children, We're socialized with beliefs around race. And we often don't even recognize these as racial messages because they're indirect or they often appear to be egalitarian in nature. But these racial socialization messages create a wall. They create a barrier to addressing racial issues and moving toward social justice. And they absolve us of the responsibility and they make vigilance around race unnecessary. And they give us this false perception that allows inequality to flourish. So a psychologist by the name of Elizabeth Bartoli has conducted research to identify how we are socialized. And she's identified these themes that you just mentioned. So there's racial silence, this message that it's rude or divisive or racist to even talk about race. And this is what makes some people afraid to even reference a person's race when describing them. So for example, the blue sweater phenomenon, when you ask someone at a party who's Richard, and they say he's the guy in the blue sweater, rather than saying he's the black guy over there. And when parents or school staff teach their children this message, they're not trying to inhibit racial progress. In fact, they probably believe they're promoting racial progress by using a colorblind approach. But in reality, this kind of approach makes people very uncomfortable and defensive, and they shut down when the topic of race is raised. And that's very bad for white people because it prohibits them from acknowledging the role that race plays in our social world. And of course, it's very bad for racially minoritized people because they can't express the reality of their experience or rally for change, or they're met with this stonewalling. So an example of institutions tapping into the message of racial silence is all this talk about banning CRT, like Desantis's individual freedom law, preventing educators from teaching certain topics related to race. And he's taking advantage of this racial socialization message. Another common racial socialization message is egalitarianism, which is the idea that everyone in our society is treated equally and we're all the same. And it's kind of a denial of the presence of racism. So an example of this is the accusation that a racially minoritized person who's calling out discrimination is playing the race card. Or like they're calling on some kind of unfair advantage that they're granted due to their historically privileged status as oppressed, if you can have a privileged status as oppressed. (laughs) And again, when parents or school staff teach children this, I don't think they're trying to inhibit racial progress. Again, they probably think they're supporting it. But we have to understand that this may be a lovely aspiration, but it is not a current reality. So white children grow up believing that children of other races have the same experiences and opportunities that they do, and children of other races receive this message as well. Yet there are observable differences in outcomes. So what do we do with that information? What do children do with that information? And then there's meritocracy, the idea that everyone in our society has an equal chance of success if they work hard and sacrifice. Another aspirational message that ignores objective reality. So this message builds on the egalitarianism theme by implying that our egalitarian values guarantee success for anyone who wants to work hard and sacrifice. So if you're succeeding, you pat yourself on the back. It's due to all of your hard work and sacrifice, you're one of the good ones. And a good example of this belief is that people who are accepted to elite educational institutions are often perceived to be superior to others, and we ignore issues of legacy students and socioeconomic advantage and cheating and all the other things that happen. And then there's the socialized message of racial pathology, and it's the logical flip side of meritocracy. Any lack of success that particular groups may experience is due to their failure to live up to American values of hard work and sacrifice, self-reliance, individualism. And this message is maybe even more overtly damaging than the others. It's more often promoted institutionally through the media by political figures, for example, and people who support the policy of mass incarceration of blacks would support this message. So you can see how by claiming egalitarianism, meritocracy, and racialized pathology as racial realities in our society, we're teaching our children to scorn and devalue the targets of oppression and to elevate and praise the beneficiaries of oppression. And we can tell our children that people are equal all we want, but if the society is producing these unequal outcomes by race or other social groupings, and remains oblivious to the historical and ongoing systemic structural and social endorsement of this inequity, then our children will all live in a state of confused denial. And we see this in many of our citizens today. And the final message is racial progress. So the message that racism is a thing of the past and we're continually making racial progress. It's over. And this one usually comes out when we're forced to confront some overt instance of racial injustice. And we teach our children how to hurdle that emotional obstacle with platitudes. So we saw after the election of Obama, many people made claims of a post-racial America, which is a message of racial progress that was inaccurate. So these beliefs are not just endorsed, but they are cherished. And they become a part of our identity, what allows us to see ourselves as good Americans and good people. They protect our self-perception as a world leader, an arbiter of right, and a moral authority. And they allow us to justify or ignore a multitude of questionable practices and policies. But there have been a constellation of events which incontrovertibly contradict the socialization messages and reveal serious injustices in our society. So as much as these changes are a good thing, our belief system, which was a source of comfort, has been challenged. So now we're grieving the injury or death of this worldview. And this is a collective loss of something dear to us, something we relied on for comfort and esteem, particularly majority group members. But we now can see that we're standing on a faltering foundation and we're trying to find our feet and we're riddled with ambiguity and uncertainty. So where do we go from here? Who can we trust? This is a critical time in our history, our racial consciousness, and our innate quest for justice. And it requires something that we have been running from, unflinching honesty. Is there a positive component to this grief? The answer is yes. Grief can be transformational. The concept of transformational grief is the idea that we can grow and develop and learn and be stronger after grieving a major loss. And this is true in the death of a loved one, but for a worldview, it's equally true and perhaps more consequential. The erosion of these beliefs and our resulting collective grief, if transformed, can be a huge and meaningful step toward real racial progress.
0: Thank you so much. I really love the sentiment at the end about racial progress and the idea of being aware of our own racial consciousness. So thank you so much for that. Within your presentation, you highlight how the death of George Floyd penetrated the wall of racial socialization, specifically egalitarian and racialized pathology. The data you present also shows that from 1970 to 2016, 70% of white Americans had a favorable view of the police whereas in 2020, 60% of Americans realized that police use excessive force against black Americans. You also discussed how beliefs about how race impacts COVID-19 health outcomes has changed with 61% of Americans now agreeing that people of color face more of the health impacts of COVID-19 than white people. How has the pandemic highlighted the inequities within the health system and its connection to other systemic inequities?
1: Well, I recently read a paper by sociologist, Eduardo Bonilla-Silva, and he discusses this topic in some detail. For example, he discussed how, when we began to learn that communities of color were disproportionately affected by COVID, immediately our racial socialization was activated. So we came out with messages of comfort, like the statement, we're all in this together was frequently heard and implies that we're facing the same threat. But were we? So this is our egalitarian socialization telling us that we're all equal and everyone has an equal chance. And many people also suggested that these communities must be doing something wrong that's causing them to get sick. And we heard statements like they have more health comorbidities that make them susceptible. Oh, so they don't take care of their health and that's why they're dying. So this is our racialized pathology socialization. And he also heard salute to our unsung heroes, the essential workers who are sacrificing for us. But little thought went into who are these people and why are they in these positions and what are the implications of their sacrifice and how are we protecting them? So research by the Brookings Institute analyzed the racial disparity in COVID deaths and they found that past and ongoing racism in virtually every sphere of life was implicated. Inequities in healthcare, housing, neighborhood infrastructure, employment, criminal justice. For example, they found that yes, blacks are more likely to have health comorbidities, but not due to neglect of health, due to external stressors and structural disadvantage caused by racism. And this includes things like redlining and chronic disinvestment in black areas resulting in neighborhoods that lack healthy food options, green spaces, recreational facilities, lighting, safety. All of these produce comorbidities. And these areas are also more likely to be densely populated, increasing the risk for COVID. They're more likely to be exposed to pollutants and toxins, a form of environmental racism contributing to comorbidities. They're less likely to have healthcare access. Hospitals are farther away, contributing to comorbidities and less care. So historical and ongoing race, racist policies, structures, and practices in many areas where blacks live promote these health outcomes. And historical and ongoing racist policies, structures, and practices in employment result in blacks being more likely to have more precarious employment, more likely to be essential workers, less likely to be able to work from home or get sick time off, and more likely to use public transit. So these racial disparities in employment exacerbate these health disparities and the wealth disparities that we just talked about. So this article by Bonilla Silva really explains a lot of the racial disparities that we see in COVID deaths. And it's important to know that these wealth and health disparities are not COVID-specific. They're affecting people in all aspects of their lives. And the pandemic has just increased our awareness of these disparities and is beginning to chip away at those messages that perpetuate them.
0: Thank you so much for that insight. During the protest language, such as riots, it has a narrative attached to it. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about this idea of what it means to be a good American, it made me think about how the same people who were critiquing what was happening in 2020 are the same people who have don't treat on me tattoos (laughs) and is really interesting to me because it speaks volumes to racialized empathy but that worldview is present in our society so in order to change it we have to acknowledge it and in order to acknowledge it we have to be honest with not only ourselves but in the environment around us so
1: I really love that absolutely even the idea that People may not consciously think because they're not white, I don't care, but they might think because they're not white, they probably did something to deserve their outcome, and therefore I don't care. So they have that second layer to distance themselves Mm -hmm. from the problem, and that's stripping away that layer that we really have to work on.
0: Yeah, and I, I even see that problem in abolition work, for example. I think that we as a society can't imagine life without the police, life without prisons. And it's also very hard for us to want to see the world that way because we've lived in the context of understanding that prisons and the justice system are here to take away the bad people, whereas we can see, statistically speaking, that most people who are incarcerated are there because they can't pay their bonds. Our narrative in regards to these authoritarian systems in our society, it also is like one of those structures of power that has managed to indoctrinate us into seeing the good in our society always, rather than truly critiquing the things that aren't working and hindering the progress of communities, specifically black and brown communities in our country.
1: Yeah, and I I was thinking as you were talking about the criminal justice system, it makes me think about in life, at what age are we when we get that one of our very first racial socialization messages about the police like Mm -hmm. how old are you three maybe when you learn that the police are the good guys and who they get are the bad guys and that is a really hard message to unlearn or to at least adjust.
0: Yeah and I think it's going to be hard for a lot of people because our socialization of what we believe is truth comes from a lens of exploitation, white supremacy, colonialism. So when you think about it from that perspective, it's easy to want to unlearn. I think (laughs) when you investigate deeper into the worldviews, your own identity, even this conversation about the parallels between COVID, the death of George Floyd and the protests that happened during this time, you kind of start to just see like we we see in most of these intersecting social justice issues how everything's just connected it's a mucky web right
1: and then you pull out a few pieces and the whole thing starts to fall apart and i think that's what the anti-crt people are terrified of right now
0: in your presentation you discuss the differential impacts of collective grief on majority and minoritized groups can you talk a little bit more about the effects on minoritized groups
1: Well, if we look at this from a racial socialization perspective, we should keep in mind that racially minoritized groups experience the same racial socialization from mainstream institutions as whites. So we can be as deeply invested in wanting these beliefs to be true. And it's less threatening to believe that racial progress is inevitable than to confront the reality, and confronting it can erode your sense of well-being. Racially minoritized group members also have daily experiences which contradict these racial socialization myths, so as much as they might like to believe some of these messages, they know them not to be true, and we've been less caught off guard by recent events than majority group members. But this knowledge doesn't necessarily reduce grief, because we then have to acknowledge that we might not get equal opportunity. We might not be judged on our own merit and our hard work, we might have to acknowledge that race relations are not steadily progressing, and this requires a kind of chronic grieving with each reminder that racial problems persist. And on top of this, racially minoritized people are aware that these myths are endorsed by the majority and that they're used to justify racial inequality, and it's very Traumatic to be surrounded by people blithely supporting these beliefs that you know harm you. And this causes racial trauma. A lot of people in our society don't realize that experiencing racism directly is only one of the burdens of racial trauma. Dealing with these mainstream racial socialization messages and worldviews in ourselves even, but certainly in majority group members around us, cause us racial trauma as well. And they're not just thoughts. And they result in people of color feeling unsafe, unwelcome, misunderstood, and undervalued. We may begin to feel hopeless. We may avoid exposure to racism. We may distrust others due to these multiple losses and letdowns. We may feel triggered by reminders of past racism. We may become emotionally labile. And we may become hypervigilant or overly alert or paranoid about potential dangers. So even when people of color are not having that very narrow range of experiences that our society defines as racist, they're constantly exposed to the burden of these worldviews in others. So before we can understand how to promote our well-being, we should consider the factors that are eroding our well-being.
0: So in study one, you evaluate the consequences of interracial interactions and the exposure to racism on self-control resources of black students and conclude that for BIPOC students, all interracial interactions may require increased vigilance. But you also know that BIPOC people also self-segregate periodically to recharge. How is the presence of community for BIPOC students important to their overall mental health and well-being?
1: It's so important, so important. So we've all heard of the many individually focused strategies like self-care, reducing social media exposure, finding a mentor, a therapist, meditation. But one area which is at the core of coping and is sometimes overlooked or undervalued is coping through connection, which has been found to be psychologically adaptive and to promote real change. So connection with others, especially others in your in-group, is an important source of strength when you're facing racial trauma. And of course, this involves our family and friends who nourish us and help us relieve stress and allow us to share our feelings. And it can also involve helping others in our community through community activities and volunteering, which gives us a sense of purpose and well-being and supports our mental health as well. In response to the Buffalo mass shooting, the New York State Office of Mental Health outlined a set of psychological needs following racially traumatic events. And these included things like a need for physical safety and calming of the body, a sense of community efficacy, so a knowledge of the strengths and resources of your community. They talked about connectedness, social support, they talked about a need for hope and the ability to normalize our responses to these events, so remembering how we have coped when dealing with things like this in the past. And it's interesting to note that all of these needs can be satisfied through positive in-group community connection, being in the company of your racial group members and engaging in activism to support your group. So in my own research, I studied the impact of interracial contact and exposure to racism on our self-control resources, and this work was based on past research that showed that a person's self-control resources can be depleted following interracial interactions. In my study, we were interested in whether it was the experience of racism itself or the interracial interaction that was causing the depletion. So we had black participants listen via webcam to a black or white person who they believed to be another participant in the study. But these people were actually accomplices of the experimenter, and these accomplices delivered a scripted statement that was either overtly racist or racially neutral. And one of the findings was that participants who interacted with a white partner were more depleted than those who interacted with a black partner irrespective of the content of the interaction. So self control depletion occurred irrespective of the presence of racism. So this suggested to us that for the targets of racism, because of our experience with racial trauma, all interracial interactions require heightened vigilance and this vigilance uses up self-control resources. So how does this relate to what we've been discussing? Well, if interracial interactions are the norm, people of color may be experiencing chronic self-control depletion. And for this reason, they may need to self-segregate periodically to recharge. So it's normal and it's healthy. And this finding is very much in line with the coping recommendations promoting community connection as a coping response to racial trauma. And it's important to note that some people will claim that this in-group connection is racist or exclusionary or equivalent to self-segregation among whites, and it is not. So whites don't have this need because they are generally in predominantly white environments where they are generally not stigmatized. And in fact, interactions with people of color for whites reduce prejudice and discomfort. In interracial interactions. So, for whites, interracial contact can be healing. This message doesn't mean that members of racially minoritized groups should never interact with white people. They certainly can interact with white people, and to the extent that they are benefiting from it, enjoying it, and participating in the larger society, it's important and necessary. The only message that we need to take from this is that. We may need sometimes Mm -hmm. not to do that. And we don't have to feel bad or ashamed of that. And nobody has to be accusatory or jealous or feel excluded about that. It's about something that we need for our mental health and well-being to do periodically.
0: For many black people, community is important in general, so that factor in regards to our mental health and well-being, it makes so much sense to me. But moving on, I did want to ask, because we're moving into this conversation a little bit about community, which has made me think a little bit about affinity groups. And I know some of your work touches on this, so I wanted to ask, how has the presence of affinity groups helped decolonize spaces within academia?
1: I think the presence of affinity groups is really important. They serve to empower people of color in a variety of ways. I read an article by the writer Kelsey Blackwell, and she outlined some of these benefits very effectively. She said, these groups are safe spaces where we can be free from mainstream stereotypes and marginalization that exist in most of the other spaces that we occupy. And in these spaces, we can be our authentic selves, without worrying about being judged or people being insecure or trying to prove that they are the most anti-racist. We can kind of be relieved of the burden that we often face with majority group members wanting us to make them feel comfortable and just realize that we're tired and we need a break from that. And in these spaces, we can make time and space for group members to be visible and to be heard in these spaces, we can build resilience and help other group members prepare to engage with other groups, and we can empower each other to take action. So we can affirm our own cultures, we can decenter whiteness, and they can also be important spaces for learning and healing, where members can explore the ways that race impacts their experience and enjoy a stronger sense of belonging. And... We should also remember these are spaces to plan and organize initiatives and promote various forms of growth like professional development, and finding or providing mentorship, porting diverse recruitment and retention, increasing political representation, and networking. And if we think about black student organizations historically, they have really moved the needle forward. A 2019 article by Maria Bohannon outlines some of the acts of activism by black student unions since 1923. It's a very interesting list, but at the end, she says, by the end of the black campus movement in 1972, 13 students had been killed during campus demonstrations and more than 100 college presidents ousted. It's estimated that students at 1,000 institutions across 49 states engaged in campus activism to demand better treatment and support of African-American students, employees, and communities during this time period. And their efforts soon spurred similar movements for other marginalized student groups and helped propel the ongoing struggle for equity in higher education. So these groups are really important. They're not just little play groups. We are doing important work and making a difference.
0: I think that's super true, it makes me think about my experience when I was at CSU. We have uh, the Black and African American Cultural Center, as well as other affinity hubs for the other marginalized and underserved communities. And what's really cool is that we're all kind of located in the same area near each other, so, we always have that community presence regardless of an event or whatnot. Those spaces are super crucial for students. Just the idea and the presence of spaces like that that decenter whiteness, specifically on predominantly white or extremely white campuses, is super important. Being able to have spaces where you know you're curating dialogues, curating programs, curating events to this specific group based on their needs is really beautiful. And in my opinion, is something I know is really hard for a lot of campuses, uh, specifically the black communities and other marginalized communities to fight for. But once they're there, it's so necessary. Yes, and as someone yeah. who went to a campus that was privileged enough to have those spaces, when I come here for graduate school, it makes me really sad for the undergrad students because so much of who I've grown to be was because of who I met at these events when I was 19, 20, 21 years old. And I've carried on those relationships with me even now into my life. So I wanted to ask, how do we preserve and protect BIPOC affinity spaces on predominantly white campuses like the University of Denver?
1: Well, I think we should make the institution aware of whatever research has been done on the topic that supports the need for these groups. And I think more research needs to be conducted on the effect of these groups on retention of diverse students, academic performance, student belonging and well-being, and the long-term connections that you're talking about that people are able to make. And I think for the most part, those who are attempting to promote diversity at predominantly white institutions, for example, in the administration, don't understand why predominantly white institutions are such isolating spaces for people of color. So, there really needs to be more research on this topic to help to elucidate these issues. And I also think, to the extent that universities support these groups, there should also be minimal interference from the institution or non-group members. So there should be a dedicated physical space, which is private and always available. And the institution should provide financial support money for the invitation of speakers and mentors that support and inspire. I think it would be great if the group could provide stress and mental health support services. The group should be put in touch with an administrator who can provide information on institutional policies that are impacting students and all the services that are available to students so that we can get access to that inside intel, which we're often left out of. And I think one thing is that affinity groups require time and organization and direction, and this takes work. So one thing institutions could do if they're serious about supporting this is provide like a paid part-time student rep position to support someone in in that organizational role. and we also need to spread the word among people of color on why these are so important because we all recognize the importance of our education and our grades and our references and all those standard metrics and we keep our heads down and we walk from class to class um we think our mental health and our social support needs we think of them as being secondary and they absolutely are not so an understanding among ourselves is important and how we support ourselves and how we enrich ourselves. And I think we also need an ongoing recruitment process to make sure that the groups sustain themselves. And I think we should study successful groups and spread strategies that they use to achieve that success. And institutions like DU that have a relatively small number of people of color, I think creating links between institutions in the same city, for example, so that they can host joint events where students can meet other people of color, they can network more broadly, they can have increased participation at the events, they can collaborate on local issues of relevance for people of color, and maybe even pool funding for events, that would be great, so they could have bigger and larger, more elaborate events. And we have to remember to also have fun. So being together is not only about doing the work, but also just reveling in who we are.
0: It's been a pleasure truly picking your mind and learning more about your research. So thank you again for your time.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. It was great fun.
0: another episode of the RAGE podcast. The RAGE podcast is the product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about what we do, please visit our website at irise.du.edu. To ensure that we bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe, follow, like, or share on the platform you are listening to us on. For RAGE opportunities and updates, please follow our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Rage Podcast, all one word. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Rage. And remember, every day you are breathing, you are winning. Stay safe and you are loved.